Well, we're in the book of Ephesians, and I uh, thank uh, Brian for being here last week and, and covering uh, for me, and uh, I will uh, be here pretty regularly on Wednesdays. I still miss a Sunday here in a couple of weeks because I got a wedding to go to and that, but uh, we'll be here fairly regularly now as far as I know. So uh, Wednesday nights we will carry through. But uh, we're in this book of Ephesians, and uh, we're just kind of going to work our way through this. This is a book that we are probably familiar with, many parts of it, because you've memorized it or you've heard it, and uh, you are uh, pretty settled in your knowledge of the book. But uh, I want us to get a full understanding of this uh, so that if you read through it, it's not just small passages. You understand the whole thing is there. Uh, Book of Ephesians, okay, this is not a trick question. It's written by, okay, Paul, as we will be until we get to Hebrews, and then we'll talk about whether we think it's Paul or not uh, for that. Uh, The time that it's written, okay, this is a letter written to Ephesus. Ephesus was a a city, a major port city. I mean, there were major cities in the Roman Empire at the time, one in Antioch, one in... in, um, Ephesus, Corinth would have been a major city. Rome would have been a major city. This is one of the major cities in the world at the time. Uh, Paul spent an exceptional amount of time in this church. Uh, you have to remember, this is the church that he dropped Aquila and Priscilla off, didn't really stay there on the second missionary journey, came back the third missionary journey, and spent, if I remember my numbers correctly, about three years there at least, which was lengthy for the Apostle Paul. Uh, he's there, he causes riots. Uh, the seventh wonder of the world, the, uh, one of the seven wonders of the world, the temple to Diana. Uh, you have this riot because they're losing money because of the preaching of the Apostle Paul. People are taking their, their gold and their silver and their books of magic and burning them. And uh, you have the people who make money off of the tourists and people who come that are upset because Paul is cutting into their business by the preaching of the gospel. And so you have a church like this. Uh, Corinthians seems to indicate that he fought with lions. Uh, We read this, uh, that he fought with lions in Corinth. There may be another element to the story where he may have been in a Colosseum at one time, or he's just referring to people as lions, but he refers to that. But uh, he spends the most amount of time with his church. Now, uh, when he gets done with that first missionary or that third missionary journey, he goes back to Jerusalem. And so the letter, letter that we know of, it was written during Paul's imprisonment after his third missionary journey. Uh, you have four epistles that are known as the prison epistles. And you go, why? Because in those letters, Paul calls himself a, uh, a prisoner or that he's in bonds. That's how he refers to himself. So he writes this while he's imprisoned by the Roman government. Uh, Paul spent much of his third missionary journey in Ephesus. Afterwards, he went to Jerusalem where he was arrested, spent several years in Caesarea, and finally proceeded to Rome. The question is, do you write it in Caesarea or do you write it in Rome? Don't know. It doesn't make a difference um, where he wrote it from. Uh, we do know this, that Tychicus uh, delivered this letter along with the letters to Colossae and Philemon. Colossae was a city that was just upriver from Ephesus when Paul was preaching in Ephesus. It seems like that was a crossroads and that people came there, heard the gospel, went back to their hometowns and start preaching the gospel. Paul, as far as we know, never got to Colossae, but people that came from Ephesus just up the river started preaching the gospel in their town and Paul had had impact because of the people that he had seen saved. Um, Tychicus, probably from uh, the city of Ephesus, but uh, takes the letter to Colossae and to Philemon, who was also in Colossae. Uh, the date is roughly about 59 to 61, uh, and uh, about that time, so uh, it's, 
You say, what's the significant date? 64 AD is when Rome burns. That's when the Apostle Paul and Peter start getting called in for just the fact that they were Christians, and that's because Rome fiddled while, or excuse me, yeah, Rome fiddled, excuse me, Nero fiddled while Rome burned, uh, and uh, he blamed the Christians for it, even though he was the one that set the fire for a reconstruction project. Um, <clears throat> but uh, yeah, about 5961 A.D. Say, so what, what is this letter about? And as you read through it, you, you begin to understand, not that it's immediate that you understand this, but this book is all about the church. Uh, it is the church, uh, and you look at it, it's illustrated as a body, uh, much throughout this, with Christ as the head. When we get to Colossians, it's the other book. Remember, Tychicus takes this, and you have one letter delivered to Col- or Ephesus and one delivered to Colossae. Ephesus's letter has an emphasis on the body, the church. Colossians' letter emphasizes Christ as the head of the church and glorifies Christ, really talking about him as the head of the body, which is the church. Ephesians is talking about the body itself, okay, the parts of it, which would be uh, us as members. Uh, Paul takes a look at the universal church and how its members are to act. You say, what do you mean by universal church? He's not really referring to any specific local church. He's talking about the church in general. When Jesus said, I will build my church, he's referring to churches all together, collectively. You know, we talk about McDonald's, and McDonald's is a corporate organization. And you can talk about it that way, but you can also talk about it in its local form when you go down the road and you stop the drive through there's a local franchise there. But really, the emphasis is on the church. Uh, when you come to the book of uh, Ephesus, uh, not so much the local church, though he's going to talk about how members act in uh, the body of Christ uh, for that. Uh, the outline of the letter, and uh, then we'll get to the details of this, three sections. First three chapters are about the calling of the church. I mean, how did this church get organized and put together? Uh, did it just happen by accident or people decided we're going to start church or whatever? Uh, he's going to talk about this organization of the body and the putting of it together, the start of it, uh, how this happens. Uh, and uh, we'll look at that. Uh, the next three chapters, Paul gives what the conduct of the church should be. Okay, When the church is the body and it's the functioning visible part of Christ... Christ is on the right hand of God as the head, and he's the one who's established the church. But you think about the church, who's doing the functioning, the hands and the feet of the church? Uh, It's individuals. So how should they look? How should they act as they go out into the world? Or going about in the world that we live in, what should they look like? And then right at the end is a passage that uh, is not completely disconnected, but its own little section uh, is that uh, there is a communication that there's going to be conflict, okay, that there's going to be battle, put on the whole armor of God. That's the passage there at the end, that the church is not just merely functioning and has no opposition, just does whatever it wants to do and whatever. No, when it's functioning the way it should, that's the time where you see uh, Satan roar. Uh, that's where you see him fight. And so uh, Paul communicates in that section uh, that there is conflict going to happen in the church. So let's uh, look at this letter and just kind of go through it and get to some of the highlights uh, here as we read through it. And uh, what we have is starting off is the calling of the church, and verses 1 through 14 is a 
statement of praise to God. Uh, some have tried to figure out that this is a hymn of some kind with three verses. I've tried to figure out how they would have sung this because there's no rhyme pattern or anything like that to it uh, to go along with it. But it's definitely uh, a statement of praise, if not a song of praise. As you go through, you find that uh, as you read in uh, verse number six, this statement to the praise of the glory of his grace. And you see that statement, or you get to verse number 12, that we should be unto the praise of his glory. Or verse number 14, as it ends there, unto the praise of his glory. Just magnifying the glory. You go, what's the glory? The workings of God. The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Glory and handiwork are the same thing. When God displays himself, he's showing his glory. Uh, and he's worthy of praise. And you kind of go, well, what is God supposed to be receiving praise for? And I will admit this, and we're going to read through the whole song here, okay? Just read it uh, in the full context. But have in your mind, a lot of people get hung up on the first couple of verses, but understand this, that salvation was part of God's plan from eternity. It wasn't that, you know, creation happened, man sinned, and oh, okay, I've got to have the secondary plan. What am I going to do here? Uh, no, that salvation is something that God had part of his plan. He had it worked out how it would happen uh, for mankind and how that salvation would be sealed. Okay, uh, look at verse number three. It just simply says this Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings and heavenly places in Christ, according as he chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the Beloved. And then this beloved, you go, who's this? Okay, it's talking about Christ. Verse 7. So you have this section of the hymn that's glorifying Christ's work. In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, wherein he hath abounded towards us in all wisdom and prudence, having made unto us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he hath purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him, in whom we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will, that we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ. We are uh, part of God's glory. That you're saved, you're part of God's handiwork. He gets glory from that. So you get to verse 13, uh, and it's praising God and mainly the Spirit. Uh, it says this, "...in whom ye also trusted," talking about Christ, "...after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also ye have believed, and ye were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance, until the redemption of the purchased possession, unto the praise of his glory." And so you go through this, and there's a lot of terms to go through there, and I'm not going to this evening do justice to them, but you look at all these terms, and it's talking about everything that's happened in salvation is going on in salvation and will happen one day. And you could almost stop right here. 
I mean, this is like a psalm almost. Uh, uh, as you read it, it's self-contained. It's praising God for doing certain things, especially not the work of creation. He's getting praise for the work of salvation. And he starts off with that. And it's one of the, the you read through the letters of Paul, it's one of the, the, the more glorious starts to one of his epistles. You know, usually he starts off and he's got some details of where he's at, who he's with, and that. And he does do that in verses 1 and 2. But then he goes into his prayer request and this type of thing. Not this one. I mean, he just starts off and says, let's give praise to God for what he's done in saving uh, individuals and securing them and keeping them safe, that this is part of God's plan, that God delights in doing this, and that this is something that God wants. And so then it is, as you get to verses 15 through 23, that Paul gives the prayer that, I'm sorry, I didn't even realize I didn't have that up. There's a couple of you that are waiting for those blanks to show up. We'll wait so you can get those in. It is planned since eternity. Accomplish salvation through redemption. But what you see is that Paul then, in verse 15, gets into this prayer. Here's what my prayer is for you. says this, I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and the love unto all the saints and cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of your prayers. And here's what I am praying for, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation of the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being lightened, that ye might know. And here's what the Apostle Paul is praying for. I want you to have the light bulb turned on in your mind. You know, he's not praying for their physical needs. He's not praying for this type. He's going, I'm praying for your mind, your heart, your understanding. I want the light bulb to go on so that you understand what is the hope of his calling, his calling that he called you to salvation, and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance as the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe according to the working of his mighty power. Now, you may not see it there. You have the four words for, in Greek for power, strength, in that verse. It's basically saying God's got all the power, every aspect of it, uh, that he has this. And what the Apostle Paul is praying for for his readers, he desires that his readers understand three things. These three things are indicated by the what statements, that you know what this is and what this is and what this is. My desire is that you understand the great abundance, and I I have that, and I intentionally highlighted that word as the blank, because there is an abundance to salvation. You know, I've been saved 45 years now, and I'm still comprehending all the aspects of salvation. I think I've got it figured out, and then all of a sudden you're like, whoa, that's another aspect of salvation I never even thought of, that God gives me abundantly above all that I could even ask or think. I, I, I can't even imagine that God gave this to me, especially when we get to chapter 2, find out how rotten we are, that God's going to give this uh, to me. But what you find is that Paul's going, I'm praying that you understand the abundant blessings of your salvation, not just something to go, I, I'm saved, okay, that's nice. No, there's an abundance of things that you've received. 
So then the Apostle Paul goes into, and he has the section in chapter 2 that is a section you've probably heard before, especially if you know, you've read your Bible or you had someone witness to you, you probably heard uh, things from this passage of Scripture. Uh, what you see in chapter 2 is the makeup of the church. What is it made up of? You know, is it grand individuals? Is it incredible people? Uh, these type of things. And the answer is, mm, no, not really. In fact, you know, it's, he didn't pick the best individuals. I mean, when you, when you think about this, even in the, the Lord, when he came to earth, when he picked his disciples, did he pick the most fabulous individuals and go, okay, these are going to be my disciples? And No, no. Uh, we looked at 1 Corinthians, and Paul told us it's not many mighty, not many mobile, noble, not the wise of this world that the Lord chooses. I mean, here you see that anybody that gets saved is really not all that impressive. Verse 1, and you hath he quickened, or made alive, who were dead and trespasses and sins. Though they're living, they're dead because they're separated by their sins from God. Death is a separation. Okay? Verse 2, wherein in times past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom we had our conversation or lifestyle in times past, in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desire of the flesh and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as others. Now, I got saved as a five-year-old. It's kind of hard to see all that stuff, but was I just as much in a, a person who was bound by the course of this world? It's the two words for world there, age and cosmos. Uh, you were, you were, the, the idea is that you were impressed by the fads of the age. You know, there's certain things that are, you know, the thing of the day, that's what you gave yourself to. And Satan was energizing you to do wrong. Not that he de- you're, you're demon-possessed, but he's influencing you heavily, and you go, throughout how, how is he doing that? Because your flesh liked doing all this stuff. You liked it. And as such, you were an enemy with God, you were separated from him, uh, you were dead, this is spiritually dead, you're separated from God in your sins, though alive physically, and you go, there's no hope for an individual like that, and the answer is, yeah, there, there's no hope for an individual like that. Absolutely nothing they can do. They've dug themselves in a hole so deep, there's no way they're getting out by their own effort. It's an infinite hole that they've dug. But then you get to verse 4, and, and it's the emphasis in the Greek is this. It's the, the contrast is in, you know, it's not just the regular conjunctions there. It is an emphasis. But here's what's the, the case now. But God who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead and our sins hath quickened us, made us alive together with Christ, by grace are ye saved, and hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness towards us through Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus. For by grace are ye saved through faith, that not of yourselves, It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And then this statement, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. 
I mean, what salvation is, the saved people that made up the church were not always so. They were slaves of their own flesh, to the world, to Satan. They deserved God's judgment, but God stepped in with his mercy, his love, and his grace. The believer right now is identified with Christ. When you got saved, you're identified in his death. You died to your sins. You were dead in your sins, but now you're dead to your sins. And now you've made a, been made alive, and like Christ sitting at the right hand of the Father, your guarantee of salvation is sitting at the right hand of the Father. It's as if you're seated in heavenly places. Your position in heaven is guaranteed, even though you're still here on earth. And that's what it means. You sit in heavenly places right now. You, you're, you know, you're secure. And it's not because of who you are. It's by grace are you saved. Not of your own works. And so you go, what made this church up? Uh, was it people who said, I want to be a part of this. Let's join the club. No. God did the work, sending his son to save people who were separated from him. He gets all the glory for it because he gifted us. So, you know, you think about this make of the church. Uh, it's individuals who were enemies of God to start off with, and now they're a part of this church. But then you get to chapter 2 and verse 11, and he says, well, you have to remember that some of you in the past were Gentiles. You say, well, what does that mean? What's the big difference? Why, why is he emphasizing this? Well, uh, verse uh, number 12, that at a time when you were without Christ, being aliens or, aliens or strangers from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. You know, in general, as you look at the Old Testament, uh, Gentiles were just kind of like, well, every once in a while you get Gentile, you get saved. You know, Naaman, you know, he finally, you know, listens to what Elijah says, and he goes back and worships the one true God in his own homeland. And uh, okay, Jonah did preach to the, the city of Nineveh, and they kind of came to repentance and that. But in general, you're, you're not seeing Gentiles come to make God their God. And what God does as the church is that it's not a Jewish entity. It's not an offshoot of the nation of Israel. What he's done is he's done something that was kind of a mystery in the Old Testament. Though you read through and you begin to see some prophecies and you start connecting the dots as you know, armchair quarterbacks look back and you're like, oh, okay, you know, I see they should have done this and that. Okay, they can piece this together. But in general, this is a, a thing that's a mystery. Okay. When you see in the New Testament a statement about something being a mystery, um, and we're going to talk about this in a second, when you have something that's a mystery, it's something that hasn't quite been revealed yet. Okay. It's not a murder mystery where you're trying to figure out all the facts that are just there and I have to gather them together. No, God didn't reveal it. Well, what God does in this, uh, in this book and identifies is that you as Gentiles who were separated and he kind of uses a word that describes what you had in the temple complex. They had a wall that was there in the temple that if you were a Gentile, you didn't get to go any further. There was a boundary between you and anybody who was a Jew. Now, if you're a woman, you didn't get further. Uh, if you're a Jewish woman, there was a wall for you. But you were separated outside. You couldn't even get into the temple. You just kind of stood out in this area for the Gentiles. And with this idea, God broke down the boundary line between Jews and Gentiles to make one new body. Uh, you that were far off were made, verse 13, nigh by the blood of Christ. He is our peace who hath made both one. He's broken down the middle wall of partition between us and abolished in his flesh the enmity. I mean, Gentiles and Jews don't get along, but they can in a church. 
Because Christ has made something new, where it's not national boundaries that matter, it's whether or not you know the Savior. And it doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile. Okay, all of that fades in the background, though okay, it does play a role in how you minister, but when it comes to your standing with God, no difference. No difference between Jews and Gentiles. Uh, they're united in a new body, as you read at the end of the chapter, these are, these are, this is a household of God, a, a building that has been built on the foundation of Christ with the teaching of the prophets and the apostles. And this is a building that if you want to you know, understand how to be a part of this, how it got there, the apostles and the prophets point to Christ. And you can't miss the fact that if you're going to be a part of this, it's founded on Christ and his work. Chapter 3, okay, the mystery of the church. Church is a mystery, which is something revealed in the past but is presently known. The idea that Gentiles could be on equal footing as Jews would have been hard to comprehend in Old Testament times. However, God in his wisdom is able to bring that about in Christ. I mean, you look at uh, chapter 3 and verse uh, number... Verse number 4 whereby you've read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages, ages was not made known in the sons of men, as it is revealed now unto us, his holy apostles and prophets of the Spirit, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs, and of the same body, and partakers of the promises which are in Christ by the gospel. And then Paul magnifies the fact, we look at this in Galatians, uh, that he is the apostle of the Gentiles, a man who was the Jew of the Jews. <laughs> Irony. Uh, he gets to go and minister to the Gentiles. And he goes, I, I delight in this. God uh, uh, is doing something. But there's also this, this kind of, you know, portion where you just kind of go, ah, I'm not sure I understand this, but you, it says it, is that God does this and shows his wisdom in the church by bringing Jews and Gentiles together and making salvation possible. He's teaching things to angels. You look at verse number nine, to make uh, all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God, who created all things by Jesus Christ, to the intent that now under the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God according to the eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. You realize God uses certain things to teach angels things? He's using the church to demonstrate how salvation works and the wisdom of God that he can bring all these things together and groups of people together and that he can do this in his infinite wisdom. You say, I don't know about that. Well, you read the book of Job. You have Satan who is an angel, fallen, but he's an angel. And God teaches a lesson using Job as an illustration so this church that we have here has this purpose that you have the opportunity, not that you, you, know, you know how this is being done, but you have an opportunity when you have God working in us and building us into what we should be. He's got the opportunity to teach angels things that they don't understand. They learn the manifold wisdom of God. They understand certain things about God by observing how his church works, how he brings it together. And that God has planned for this. And so uh, the angels seeing this uh, for 6,000 years, but the last 2,000 years with the church being a part of things, they're understanding things about the wisdom of God that they never understood before. 
And so uh, that is the, the mystery of the church, kind of a, an interesting side note of what he's doing with the church. But you get to the end and you have the Apostle Paul. He ends with another prayer, <clears throat> another lengthy prayer. But he just simply says, verse 14, for this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might by his spirit and the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, the length, the depth, of the height, to know the love of Christ, which passeth knowledge, that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God." The only thing he can do is end with this benediction of just praise to God. Now unto him that is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that worketh in us. Unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all the ages, world without end. Amen. The Apostle Paul could stop there too. He's kind of go, what's a great thing that God has done? He's done all of this. I mean, you've had no commands to this point except for one. All of it's been teaching. He's simply saying, you need to know this stuff. You want to know this? This is how this works. Isn't this fantastic? This is great. Look at what God's doing. He deserves all the glory. And he closes off with this benedictory prayer. I mean, this prayer at the end of the doctrinal section, okay, the doctrinal is just a fancy word for teaching section, collects all the items from the letter to this point and prays the believers come to know and both know and, okay, this is part of the Christian life. Okay? It's not just head knowledge. There are things you experience. Okay? And he's going, I want you to experience these things. I want you to know these things uh, and have this happen in your life that you are displaying Christ's work in your life, in your own life, and in the life of others. You're seeing this. You're a part of this, that you experience this. If the church is filled with these things, then Christ will be glorified by the church. Okay, when these things are going on where the church members are learning and understanding these things, then there's something for going on in the church. Now, it's at this point everything changes in this book. And you have in this section, we call it the conduct of the church, but there's something to note here that in the first three chapters of Ephesians there contains only one command. And it'd be hard to pick it up if you weren't saying, oh, I'm going to find command statements here. So that Paul's saying, you need to do this. Uh, you find it in verse uh, 11 of chapter 2. Wherefore, remember that in times past you were a certain way. Okay, that's, that's the only command. Okay, this is what you need to do. First three chapters. Because it's all doctrine. It's all teaching. You suddenly get into 4, 5, and 6, and it's one command after another, after another, after another, and directives and commands, and here's what you need to do, and you need to be doing this, and you need to be doing this, and suddenly you're having all of the teaching that you've had in the first three chapters now applied. Okay, here's what you need to be doing. And the word that is the key word that you see in this section is the idea of walk. Your walk, okay? What's, what's your walk? One, one you know, step after another, after another, after another. Okay? This is a thing that's not just one-time event. It's talking about the way you live your life, the way you go through life as you go through the walk of life. And you see this term, walk, come up repeatedly over and over again. 
And as you see, you start off in chapter 4, verses 1 through 16, there's this unity of the church. Okay, you know, the church is unified by Christ. Okay, he, he does this, and he brings Gentiles and Jews together. But there is in our part uh, a practical side to this that we have to work to be unified. Okay, so how does that work? Well, uh, you have uh, this statement, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ beseech you, I challenge you, that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you're called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Okay, you do all these things, and how do you do it? Well, you make sure you're meek, you make sure you're humble. You may have strengths and abilities, but that shouldn't be something you lord over other individuals. And you forbear and show kindness to one another. And understand this, that there is one body, one spirit. You're in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, the Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. And you say, well, how does this work out? Well, God gives us gifts to help each other out. Helps bind us together, Okay. And you have the section that talks about gifts, verse 7. But unto every one of us is given grace or a gift according to the measure of the gift of Christ. This is a statement of, you know, why do people go to church? Okay? Because they have to stand up or they have to endure someone like me preaching. You go, if that's your understanding of the church, you've missed it. What God does is brings a bunch of people together with different giftings that he has given. Some, and, we, and sometimes it's natural talent that God gifts and makes even stronger, and sometimes it's not their natural ability, and God says, I'm giving you this ability to accomplish things, whether it be service or administration or whether it's teaching or these type of things. And I give this so that you can help others who don't have that gifting don't have that ability or they have a need that you can meet and so what god does is he gives gifts and like ligaments and tendons and muscles and all of these things bind together a body god gives gifts to bind people together in a church body i'm always amazed how god brings certain people together and they have certain talents and abilities and just when the church is starting to go you know what we have a need for this god supplies an individual who goes, you know, I, you know, I can do this, and they do a great job at it. And you go, how is that? Is, you know, they didn't seem to have natural talent for that. Uh, you go, God's enabling them. He's gifting them. And all this gifting is ultimately you have certain individuals who are, are given gifts, but ultimately what the gifts you hope will do. Look at verse number 12. For the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying or the building of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of fullness of Christ. What we're trying to do is we're trying to make mature Christians. That's what the idea of perfecting is. People who look like Christ. And we're trying to build them up. We're trying to help them uh, in the process of becoming more like Christ. Believers are to walk in their calling as if they were saved. This walk is displayed by unity given by God. It comes through the gifts that God gives to every believer for the maturing of the saints and the building up of the body of Christ. Okay? And the one thing that it requires is, remember right in the middle of 1 Corinthians chapter 13, or 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, is 1 Corinthians 13. And remember what 12 and 14 is talking about? How to use your gifts. And right in the middle of it, it talks about love. And you go, well, why do you need love? Because the problem with the Corinthians was, hey, I've got a better gift than you do. 
My gift's more you know, fabulous than yours is. Your gift's nothing. And there was this element of selfishness and pride. And what you need in order to, to function in the church is not selfishness. You need what love is, selflessness. It's not about me. It's about everyone else their needs. Uh, in fact, you have this, this famous statement uh, where it says, speaking the truth in love that you may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ. Uh, it's really not speaking the truth in love. The word speaks not really behind this term. It's basically truthing. You're living out this truth in love. You're like, you're, you're living, you know, if, if truth is an action verb, that's what you're talking about here. Truthing in love. You're displaying what is the reality in your own heart of what Christ has done in love for you. You're now displaying this out. You're displaying this in your life. So it requires love for this to occur, for churches to be unified. It's not about what I get. It's about what others need and how I can help them. It's chapter 4 and verse 17. When you're walking, you're going to look different than the world. I mean, you weren't saved to do the same thing you used to do. You're saved to be different. I mean, verse 17, I say therefore and testify in the Lord that ye henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind. They have their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness that is in their heart. I mean, these people give themselves in verse 19 to all manner of lasciviousness, all sorts of wickedness. See, you know God. You know, you're experiencing the knowledge of God and you're understanding certain things. You don't live like they do. They don't understand that the habits they have are self-destructive. They go against who God is and what he is like. And so there there is this element, okay, I'm going to live differently because I'm saved because I understand certain things about God. I know certain things. He doesn't live like this. He's commanded differently. Uh, There's going to be a difference uh, in our background as to what we have lived like. I mean, believers are different. To remain like the world sends a wrong message about salvation. You get to Ephesians chapter 4 and verse number 22 that you put off concerning the former conversation, the former lifestyle, the old man. And verse 23, being renewed in the spirit of your mind, I mean, you're understanding certain things about God, that verse 24, that you put on the new man, which is after God, created in righteousness and true holiness. And this is going to look like this. You're going to put away lying. You're going to be angry and not sin. You're not going to give place to the devil, verse 27. You're not going to steal anymore, but you're actually going to labor with your hands. You're not going to let corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth. I mean, this is what it's going to look like. There's a difference of life. Different than the way I emotionally are moved in this. And so our walk, our daily activity should reflect, and you see this word love in verse 2, that we're walking in love. That in verse uh, number uh, 8, that we're walking in the light, as he is in the light. And that we are ultimately walking circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. And then you say, what's, what's the the um, verse after that. Anybody remember? Not walking as fools, but as wise. Redeeming the time because the days are evil. What is a wise person doing? Is they're buying back time. You say, how do they buy back time? They're planning in advance. That's how they're buying back their time. They're considering that time is valuable. So we heard a week and a half ago in Psalm 90 
that we pray that we teach us to number our days. Okay. Um, yeah, so that's what you have here in the section, that you're going to walk contrary to the world. The world lives for the here and now. Uh, a person who's wise is thinking long-term and considering what time is you know, valuable. Um, <clears throat> the Spirit's impact on your walk. Okay. The Spirit plays a role in your salvation and sealing you for salvation, but it also plays a role in helping you. And this is uh, one of those passages that is uh, remembered by many. It starts this way, And be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. The idea of being filled there is not that we have half the Spirit, you know, half, half full, half empty, you know, I'm only half filled with Him. No, the idea of that word filled is controlled. And you go, how do you know that? Because of the illustration at the beginning what does alcohol do to a person? It takes over. It controls them. People do stuff they would never do otherwise. They have emotions they would never have otherwise. You go, why? Because they've been affected by the alcohol they've, been t- they've taken, and the alcohol has taken control of their senses. So it is, and it's kind of a play here, you know, don't be, and some have said it this way, don't be drunk with spirits. Well, that's what alcohol is sometimes called. But be filled or controlled by the Spirit. You say, what does that look like? Well, when you're controlled by the Spirit, you have no problem speaking to yourselves in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody unto the Lord in your heart, giving thanks always for all things unto God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submit yourselves one to another in the fear of God. I mean, these are the type of things that happen, well, supernaturally when the Spirit's working on you. You don't have any problem singing songs of praise to God. You know, you don't have to put any effort into it because it's just the, the spirit. You're like, I, I can't do anything but sing praise to God. I, I can't, you know, I can't complain because I've got too many things to thank him for. And the ultimate thing here is this kind of leads to the next section that I'm willing to submit to one another in the fear of God. Now, submitting is the hard thing. You know, these other things, so praising, singing God, that's easy. Uh, submitting, our flesh hates it. We don't like it. Okay, we don't like submitting to the government. And he's going to give certain situations here. Now he says, okay, I'm going to give you certain everyday situations in life. Okay, now we go through here, daily walk, expected the believer's allowance with spiritual control, just alcohol controls one activity, so believer's walk is impacted by the Spirit. He moves and prays and thanksgiving and helps him or her submit to one another in the fear of God. But as you get to verses 22, then to chapter 6 and verse 9, you have three major relationships. And I'm not going to go through it because, uh, read through them because they're familiar. But Paul gives three sets of relationships that believers can reflect the work of Christ in their life, the work of the Spirit, doing things. First, wives should submit to their husbands. Wives, submit yourselves unto your husband. You go, it's not easy. You don't know the man I married. Okay, well, Oftentimes when you think that, then you ought to be thinking about yourself and go, what kind of person was I? You know, I was a person just like, you know, well, chapter 2 where I was following my own flesh, doing my own thing. I, you know, I'm not, not a great noble person, but, um, you know, wives submit to your husbands, okay? Honor their decisions and the, the like and that, but the husband doesn't just merely run over her because of this. He's going to act in love like Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. And you go, what is love? Love is selflessness. That's the problem for men is that we're selfish. You know, someone said men are this, their ego and appetite. Don't get in their way. You know, that's the way they are. And that's 
the general nature of man. And so what man has to do is to fight the fact that, well, you know, they're selfish. Love like Christ did. Uh, you get to the relationship in, in chapter 6. It's uh, that children should obey their parents while parents are to lead uh, with a desire to bring their children up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord, that they make mature followers of Christ. Okay, we're not talking that, you know, you help them grow up and be mature. No, we, you, this is talking that you grow them up in Christ, that they understand who He is that by the time they're done with you uh, and uh, living with you, that there's a maturity in Christ. You know, that's your goal. Not, you know, keep the family name. You know, make our name look good. And what, no, no, no. The best thing you can have for your kid is that they know Christ. So that's important for us as parents. You go, it's hard being a parent. <laughs> yeah, it is. That's why you need the Spirit's help. Okay. Now, third, servants are to obey their masters, whether they are being watched or not. Okay, and you talk about this in the servant, boss, and employee. Okay, you don't only work when you're being observed, because why? Well, you are doing it as unto the Lord. You're being observed by Him. He would expect you to do good work. And so you do it whether you are doing this, and sometimes you have individuals who are twisted as, le- or as your, your masters, but you still do it as unto the Lord. And on the other hand, masters, verse 9, do the same things unto them for bearing, threatening, knowing that your master also in heaven, neither is there respect of persons with him. What it's simply saying is this, is you treat all of your people fairly. Same way. And so you say that's hard. Well, you can walk this way and do these things by the help of the Spirit. And it's at this point where Paul, once again, could stop. Okay, but he doesn't. He's got one more section. It's a warning to the whole church and just simply says, you're in a fight. You're in a battle. Verse 10, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God. Well, why do I have to do all this? Okay, verse number 11, that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. The strategizing of the devil. Uh, Realize this, that the devil is not just haphazardly going after you. The devil's extremely intelligent. He's not an idiot. He was the chief of God's creation at one time and was the chief of knowledge, in knowledge uh, of his creation. So he's not doing things haphazardly, so you're working against an enemy who's extremely crafty. As you find in Genesis chapter 3, the serpent was the most subtle, craftiest creature in the field, hinting at what Satan is crafty. But reminder, the church in its efforts... uh, church in its efforts does not stand unopposed. Satan is crafty at a strategy, crafting a strategy to take down the body of Christ. The believer needs to be prepared to stand. God has gifted the believer defensive equipment to be able to stand against the devil. And you go through and you have all this armor that God has given you at salvation that's a part of your life and uh, these uh, things that he gives and you have the whole listing of them there in verses 14 through 17 and 18. You know, ending verse 17, take the helmet of salvation. And then this statement, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication. And we kind of run over that last 
section and go, uh, well, okay, you got the sword, and oh, by the way, pray. Um, but realize this, this is where you get to the point where there is some offensive equipment you're given. The sword of the Spirit. Uh, realize when Jesus was tempted by Satan, what did he use as his offensive weapon? Scripture. What God had communicated was his weapon. And he quotes this as a pattern for us to, to be able to stand against the wiles, the strategy. You, you know, the devil is using a strategy on Christ. He had planned this out and plotted, you know, maybe I can get him to do this. And he worked circumstances out. Nope. But you have this, the word of God, and then prayer on the other side are forms of communication. God's communication to us and us communicating back to him. You know, you always want to have in a battlefield communication with the commanding general, informing him of needs or things that are going on. And so here you have these final weapons, which are kind of offensive weapons in some ways uh, in your defense against the devil, active things uh, that we ought to be using. And so here we have the word gives the right responses to every situation while prayer allows a believer to communicate the needs to their commanding officer uh, to God for help. And then Paul just closes off the letter. Reminds us you're in a battle. Done. Okay? Not everything's going to be, we love the church. You know, everyone loves the church. No, not everybody loves the church. In fact, there's a lot of people that hate the church. Uh, so you're going to be in battle. And so just beware. They're being empowered by an individual who seeks to destroy everybody, but especially something that's representing Christ to the world at large. All right, Lord, we thank you uh, for your word. We thank you for this book of Ephesians that reminds us of uh, the glorious opportunities you give us as a church and as individuals, as parts of that church. May we not uh, be ones who fall when the pressure comes, but uh, beware of the fact that there's an enemy who's trying to, to distract uh, people and destroy the image of your body. Uh, may we be willing to stand with the weapons that you give. We love you, Lord. Thank you for the salvation you provide in Christ and makes the church possible by his death and now resurrection and him sitting at the right hand, well, as the head. And we are his body. May we represent him well, and this we pray in Christ's name. Amen.